How is the church supposed to tell the world about Jesus when the king is against them? King Herod has plotted with the Jews to persecute the believers, throw them in prison, even killed at least one of them. In a moment, Dr. James Boyce explains how an angel of God steps in to get rid of this pesky king, freeing up the church to spread God's word. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The King Herod described in Acts 12 was a real piece of work. He was no friend of God, and it was time for him to go, to make way for the spread of the gospel beyond Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Let's listen now together to Dr. Boyce. We come tonight to the very end of the 12th chapter of Acts in our study of this great New Testament book, and we come as a result to a strange incident. It tells us of the death of Herod, and our reaction might well be, so what? I say that because the death of a king is not all that remarkable, record of a death of any kind, unless the person is well known to us and missed by us, is not remarkable, certainly not the death of kings. All kings die. All people die. We might tend to treat that a bit lightly. I think, for example, of the couplet from Cymbalin, Shakespeare's play, a play not very well known, though the couplet is. It goes golden Lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. Well, that's what we have with Herod. Herod was a man, a king, but he was not so high that he could escape death, and he did die, and he was judged. So we say, what is all that remarkable about that? We might also raise the question about this story because of where we are in the book. This is a little bit of narrative that might belong somewhere along the way, we could reason, but it doesn't come just anywhere along the way. It comes at the end of chapter 12, and chapter 12, as you know from our previous study, ends what some people would call the first great half of Acts, but which I think, because of our study of the outline at the beginning, actually ends the second part. You recall that in the first chapter, in Acts version of the Great Commission, Jesus said that his disciples were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and finally throughout the world. Now it is at the part of going throughout the world that we come when we come to chapter 13. Up till now, we've had the witness in Jerusalem, and then it's begun to spread and to the surrounding areas, Samaria, and a bit of the Gentile world. But now here in chapter 13, we have the beginning of this great missionary expansion of the gospel. Chapter 12 concludes the previous section. And we might say, is that any way to end a major section of the book with a story about the death of this king, this King Herod? Well, I think it is significant. And I'd like to show you why. First of all, I'd like to point out who this king was. There are a lot of Herods in the New Testament. Some people read the accounts and find that word Herod and assume it's all the same person. Well, it isn't. There are at least five Herods, and it helps in some things to keep it straight. This was a dynasty. 
And the first and great king in the dynasty was the Herod who goes by the name Great, Herod the Great. This was the king who was reigning at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. He's the king that ordered the murder of the babies of Bethlehem, thinking that if he killed all the children that were two years of age and younger, he would probably get this king who, according to the word of the wise man, was an upstart pretender to the throne. So that was the first Herod. Then he was succeeded by a second Herod, Herod Archelaus, and we're not told anything about him. He just doesn't enter into the New Testament in any way, and that is undoubtedly because he was reigning during a time about which the New Testament records virtually nothing. That is the early years of the lifetime of Jesus Christ. We don't begin to get much information until he began his public ministry about 30 years after his birth. The third Herod in this line of Herods was Herod Antipas. Now, we do know something about him because he is the Herod who killed John the Baptist. He had a woman who was not lawfully his wife, not allowed to be by Jewish law. John the Baptist had preached against that, and the woman was resentful, and so she schemed against John the Baptist. She had her daughter Salome dance, and when Herod said he'd give Salome anything she wanted, she went to her mother, and her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so this is the Herod that killed John. This Herod also enters into the trial of Jesus. He wasn't the one who presided over the trial at which Jesus Christ was condemned and eventually crucified. That was Pilate. But you recall that Pilate, who believed that Jesus was innocent but was caught between the horns of a dilemma, his conviction of Jesus' innocence and the desire of the people to have him killed was hunting around for any way he could find to get off the hook. And he thought, well, there's Herod over there. When he heard that Jesus came from Galilee, Herod was reigning over that area of the country. He said, oh, I'll just pretend that this Jesus of Nazareth is under his jurisdiction. So he sent him off to Herod. But Herod well understood what was going on. He amused himself for a little bit, and then he just sent Jesus back to Pilate. But that's the third Herod in the line. Now, the fourth is Herod Agrippa I, and this is our Herod, the one that occurs in this story. We're going to see more about him, a little bit about his career. Just to round it out, he had a son. His son was Herod Agrippa II. He was too young at the time of this Herod's death, at the time that is alluded to here at the end of chapter 12, to take the throne. He was in Rome at the time, and Claudius, the emperor, instead of sending the son as the successor to be another king, sent a procurator instead to rule in this dangerous area of the world. But eventually, Herod Agrippa did become king, though with very limited power. This was the Herod before whom the apostle Paul appeared and made a defense some years later. You have that recorded in the 25th chapter of Acts. So you have all those different Herods. Now, as I said, this is Herod Agrippa I. He had an interesting career. He was raised in Rome, and while he was in Rome in the royal household, he became a personal friend of Gaius Caligula. That is not a great honor. I was a emperor who turned out to be particularly corrupt, but this Herod got to know him. And then when Caligula came to the throne, he appointed his friends to prominent positions in the empire. In other words, they had a patronage system in that day, exactly the way you have in politics today. And his friend Herod Agrippa was a good man and a friend, and so he sent him off to take charge of certain areas in this region of the world. In AD 37, Agrippa was given the tetrarchies of Philip and Lysanias, 
Two years later, the territories of Galilee and Perea were added to him. And then finally, in AD 41, he was given the title King of Judea. Now, king didn't mean quite what we think of it meaning. We think of a king as a person who has absolute dominion over his territory. This wasn't the way Herod functioned. He was called king, but he was really a vassal of Rome. He had to do what Rome said. He had to be very, very careful to do what Rome said, or the emperor would just remove him, probably also remove his head. But at any rate, he was given this title of king, no doubt because of his predecessors in this great and distinguished line of Herod's. We don't know a whole lot about some of these other men, but we do know a bit about Herod Agrippa I. One thing we know, Josephus writes about it, is that he tried very hard to get on good terms with the Jews. He did everything that he could think of to win their favor, perhaps. If we're cynical, we would say for political reasons. He knew that this was a trouble spot. He wanted to keep peace, but perhaps also because he had a genuine respect for the Jews' religion. He was half-Jewish and even entered into the ceremonies in the temple, such as reading the Scriptures, reading the law on certain occasions in the court of the women, which was as far into the temple enclosure that he was allowed to go. At any rate, this is the man whose death is now recorded for us here. It's interesting that this is one place where something that we're told about in Acts is duplicated for us in secular literature. I mentioned a moment ago that Josephus tells us a bit about this Herod, and he does. And one thing that Josephus tells us about is Herod's death. And not surprisingly, what Josephus tells us is very much like what we find here. All the outline of events is the same, and there are no contradictions. Josephus adds a few things, a few embellishments. I don't mean by using the word that he invented these things, no doubt they're the way it really happened, but they're embellishments to the story. What Luke tells us is that uh, day was appointed when Herod gave a speech to the people, and he appeared in his royal robes, and they greeted him in a flattering way. They said to him, this is not the voice of a man, this is a voice of a god. They were alluding to his alleged oratorical abilities. And Luke says he didn't take the glory that was given, and give it to God as he should have. Rather, he took it for himself, and as a result of that, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he died. Now, Josephus says, following exactly the same outline, but nevertheless adding something, that this was done on a morning when all of the people had gathered together for a great address at the very dawn of the day, and that Herod appeared dressed in a robe, a royal robe. It's what Luke says, but as Josephus adds, a royal robe made of silver, actual silver. He was a very rich man, and here was a robe made of silver. And Josephus says he appeared on the dais to give his speech just as the rays of the sun were lifting up above the surrounding buildings or enclosure, and the rays of the early sun fell on him. You know how in the early morning the sun is not white as it is in the middle of the day, but golden with the dawn. And these golden rays fell upon the shining silver suit of Herod Agrippa, and he glowed, he glowed like a god. And the people said, ah, it's a god. This is no mere man. This is a god. And then Josephus said, while it was happening, 
And Josephus says it too. He did not give the glory to God. He took it to himself. And while this was happening, while the words were being said, suddenly this man, Herod, felt acute pains within. Josephus didn't understand what the medical ailment was. People have written about it since. You can find books that try to say what it was. But at any rate, he was struck down, and within five days, according to Josephus, the man had died. The lesson certainly wasn't lost on those who were present. It wasn't lost on Josephus. The lesson that everybody could see was you must not take the glory of God for yourself. Herod did that, and God struck him down. Whenever I read this story, I do think of a similar story in the Old Testament, which I've alluded to on occasion. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his desire to take God's glory for himself. Daniel is the book that tells us about it. The early chapters give us Nebuchadnezzar's story. There are a lot of interesting parts to the story, but the part that is pertinent to the story of Herod comes from the time when Nebuchadnezzar stood upon the roof of his great palace in Babylon, looking down, no doubt, over the hanging gardens that were one of the great wonders of the world, looking out upon the great walls of the city that he thought were sufficient to protect him from all attack and preserve his empire forever. He looked out upon that great city, one of the great wonders of the ancient world, a marvel, and he said, Look at this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty strength and for the glory of my majesty. And the text tells us that in a way very similar to what happened to Herod, it was while he was yet speaking that a voice came from heaven and said that because he didn't give glory to God but took the glory to himself, he would be driven from the company of man, he would become like an animal, insane, and live in the fields for a period of seven years until he should acknowledge that the Most High God is the true God of heaven and on earth. And that's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar became insane. He was driven from the palace, treated the way they undoubtedly treated the insane in those days. And he lived like an animal for seven years until, as he himself says, at the end of the seven years, my sanity returned. And it means, you see, not just intellectual sanity, but spiritual sanity. He came to his senses spiritually is what it means. And he acknowledged that the true God really was the God of heaven and on earth. He said, the Most High is the true God. He lifts up whom he will and he debases whom he will. Praise be to that God. Now, I said, you see, that there's a parallel between the stories, and there is. But there's also a great contrast. Nebuchadnezzar was judged in such a way that allowed him, by the grace of God, in time to regain his spiritual mind and acknowledge that the true God really is the true God. Herod didn't have an opportunity to do that. Perhaps it's because Herod should have known better, because Herod sat in the temple enclosure reading the law and knew who the true God was and knew that he should give God glory. But on this Great occasion when the masses surrounded him and they said to him, Oh, aren't you wonderful? You're a god. When that happened, he lost his mind, as it were, and he said, Oh, yes, isn't that true? Aren't I wonderful? And God struck him down. Now, most of us are never going to get in a position where we do anything like that. I trust no judgment like that is ever going to come upon us. But, you know, we do have that tendency to take praise for ourselves when it ought to go to God. 
People say, oh, isn't that wonderful what you've done? Or, oh, aren't you wonderful? Or, oh, aren't you talented? Now, some of us, they don't say that too very often, but some of us get that. Some of you get that. There's always a tendency when that happens to sort of smile and kind of a half-humble way and say, uh, yes. <laughs> and, you know, I guess there's a way in which we can do that that isn't really so bad. We're just trying to be polite. We don't really take it seriously, but it is a dangerous thing. And what we must learn to do is to give glory to God. There is no talent we have that God has not given. There is no success that we have made that God has not provided the means to make the success. There is nothing whatsoever of any good that we can achieve that God is not the ultimate origin of the good. And so we need to acknowledge that as the Bible teaches. And yet, having said all of that, I think that the reason Luke includes this story here is not primarily to say that it is wrong to take the glory of God for ourselves, though that is obviously true. It is part of the story. But he puts the story here, rather, because of the contrast it provides with those two verses with which this great section of the book of Acts concludes. Verse 24, which says, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. And verse 25 that says that Barnabas and Saul finished their mission, went back to Antioch from Jerusalem, taking John, Mark, and thus the ground was laid for the missionary expansion that takes place in part two. You see, the reason I think the contrast is intended is that Herod was the one who has been most effective up to this point in opposing the progress of the gospel. We've looked at the growth of persecutions of the church as we've studied these previous chapters, and we've seen that at the beginning it really wasn't very intense. All the Sanhedrin didn't much like it when the apostles went around preaching that this Jesus that they had seen crucified was raised from the dead and calling people to believe in him, and they liked it even less when the disciples said that the Sanhedrin was guilty of the man's murder, but nevertheless, they were Jews, and they were in good standing, and they weren't violating any of the laws of Israel, and so there wasn't a whole lot that they really could do. They told them not to preach, and they beat them on occasion, but mostly they allowed them to go their own way, to be alone. Then as the gospel began to spread, and the whole question of the validity of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles arose, we saw that the persecution increased when Stephen, the first martyr, began to preach along those lines. They killed him. And later, when the gospel spread further, they got very angry at the apostles. And this Herod actually arrested James and had him executed. And then, as we saw in the story, he arrested Peter, thinking that he was going to have him executed too. This is the man, you see, the one who had tried to curry the greatest possible favor with the Jews and who was most opposed to the expansion of the Christian gospel, repressing that in order that he might gain the one. This man who had tried to oppose the expansion of the gospel is now struck down by the angel of God at the end of this section. And the verse immediately after it says, as I have pointed out by contrast, but... The word of God continued to increase and spread. It's always that way. We have had many 
periods in history when people have tried to oppose that gospel, that gospel, that word of God, that good news of salvation in Jesus Christ has always gone forth with increasing power into the world. Why is it that the gospel continues to increase and spread when so many other messages flounder and die and become relics of the past? Well, there are a number of reasons. Let me suggest a few. All of these reasons have to do with verses of Scripture that refer to God's Word. I think, for example, of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, those verses say, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, perfected for every good work. The key word there is useful. One reason why the gospel... The Word of God continues to increase and spread, as Luke says it does. It is so useful. It does what needs to be done. It is a practical thing. Many messages we hear and to which we give a great deal of attention are anything but useful. They're useless, if the truth be told. Most of what we hear is useless. You listen to television, you watch a story. Next week, can't even remember what the story was. Utterly useless so far as anything other than entertainment was concerned. You see a commercial, and that's useless. You read a newspaper, and the kind of information you get there a few days later is generally useless. Oh, sometimes some use, you see, but most of what we hear, most of what we give our time to is useless, and certainly useless if we're thinking spiritually. But here is good news from God that is not useless. It's useful. That's the word that Paul uses, and it's useful for what we need. We need to be instructed. We don't know about God. We don't know about ourselves. We're ignorant of all the things in life that really matter. And here is a word from God that explains all these things, puts them right, and shows us what we really ought to believe and how we can think and how we can believe. Here's a word that rebukes us when we go astray. It teaches us the meaning of sin. It tells us that it's wrong. It corrects us, not only rebuking, but it directs us in the way that we should go. And it does the work of a teacher to lead us on step by step as by the grace of God we try to grow in the Christian life. That's why the Word of God continues to increase and spread. I guess they would have said of Herod, well, he did many useful things. And he did. He was a great builder. He spent lots of money, built amphitheaters and baths and all sorts of things like that. But compared to the gospel, which changes men and women, brings life out of death. What he did was of relatively little value. Or I think of Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Or I think of Isaiah 55 that compares the word of God to the rain and the snow that come down from heaven and waters the earth and causes it to bring forth in bud that it might give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And it says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Second reason, the word of God continues to increase and spread is that it's powerful. Not only useful, but powerful. It does what other things can't do. It's penetrating, for one thing. That's what the verse in Hebrews means. It gets to us where we are. We set up barriers. We surround ourselves by suits of armor to protect ourselves against the truth of what we are and what God is and what the future holds apart from Jesus Christ. The Word of God is a thing that penetrates through that armor of our own making. 
It penetrates like the scalpel of a surgeon, and it gets to us, and it shows us that we really are sinners in need of the grace of God, and so it breaks down our defenses. Nothing but the Word of God, the gospel, does that. And moreover, when it penetrates, it does it not to destroy, because the work of the surgeon is not to destroy, but to heal, to bring forth life and fruitfulness, which is what the verses in Isaiah 55 are all about. Just like the rain, it comes down and waters the earth, and it might begin to bring forth and bud and grow and produce things that people can eat. That's the way the Word of God, the gospel, operates. And we've seen that. That is the story of the Christian church. The Word of God breaking down people's resistance and then doing a work of regeneration and making people fruitful so that from that time on they begin to contribute to the world and do that which is helpful and a blessing. I think, too, of Matthew 24, verse 35, a verse from one of Jesus' last sermons. We call it the Olivet Discourse, the Mount of Olives, shortly before his arrest and crucifixion. He said on that occasion and in that verse, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. There's a third reason why the Word of God continues to increase and spread. It's an eternal Word. It's an everlasting Word, an indestructible Word. We look about us and we say, well, it's true. People come and go. Herod died. We die. There's anything permanent. It's the earth upon which we stand and the universe in which we exist. But this verse says that even those things will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, says Jesus. And one thing won't pass away, and that is my word. It is eternal. That's why it increases and it spreads. You see, a person who comes to understand that understands, as Christians do understand, that although there is value in what we do here and the things we see here, that, that things that we can touch and handle, those things, though they have value, are of relative value and not lasting value. What does have value are the things that are eternal, the invisible things, and they come about as God works through his word in the hearts of men and women. And so that's why we're so anxious to teach the word of God. That's why we're so anxious to see men and women come to believe it, to be born again. Because when there is a birth like that, well, then something happens, the results of which are going to go on throughout all eternity, forever and ever. It is also why Christians build their lives upon the Word. It's why they have been willing to die for their profession. People say, well, nothing can be more precious than life. That's true if you're talking about spiritual life, but it's not true if you're talking about physical life. Many Christians have willingly given up their physical life because of that life beyond. They say they want to build upon the Word. They want to build upon the Gospel. They want to link their lives to these truths that will never be destroyed. Is it any wonder that a faith like that increases and spreads throughout the world? One last verse, also from the Olivet Discourse in the same chapter, Matthew 24, verse 14. This verse tells us that the Gospel must be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. It's Jesus' way of saying that the gospel will prevail, the missionary enterprise will continue, 
the establishing of churches in every nation among all peoples will be successful, not because of us, though it's done through us, but because this is what Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord of glory, has decreed. Oh, I think of those who have tried to oppose this gospel over the centuries, oppose it by all the means at their disposal. There were times in history when men tried to oppose the expansion of the Word of God by the sword. And that's what Herod had tried to do when he struck down James. People have said, if you continue to preach and teach that, we will take away your life. And they did it. There have been countless martyrs in the history of the church, but the Word of God is not bound. Justin Martyr said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it was so. The more they killed, the more the gospel spread. And it dawned on the early emperors that this was no way to suppress Christianity. And they gave it up. People have tried at other times and in other places. They're trying to do it by force in Russia today, in some quarters. But it doesn't work. The gospel spreads, and it will continue to. Other people have tried to suppress or bind the gospel by ridicule. They've said, well, you know, if you beat people up, they only get their backs up. You kill them, it only turns them into martyrs. We don't want to do that. Why, that gives the church heroes, and people will follow heroes. What we need to do is tear the heroes down. Let's not dignify this religion by making martyrs. Let's just ridicule it. And so they laugh at us when we make the profession. Ha, ha, they say, who believes a foolish thing like that? Oh, you can believe that if you want to. Your grandmother believed it. But nobody today can believe anything like that. Oh, if you want to get ahead in the world, if you want people to think well of you, don't believe a thing like that. And in its place, they put up things which, I suppose, a dozen years ago, I would say 50 years from now will be out of date, but we live in a rapidly changing world. Two years from now will be out of date. Maybe a month from now will be out of date. You're supposed to build your life on that. And the gospel that they ridicule, you see, goes on and on. People have tried to bind the gospel by neglect. That is, by pretending it's not there, just getting on with their secular lives. Christianity? What's that? Never heard of it. Must not be important. And yet the gospel spreads. People have tried to oppose or bind the gospel by creating substitutes for it, counterfeits, saying, well, all right, we'll take religion, but we'll have religion without Christ. Let's have his ethics. But we don't need this business of a cross and a death and an atonement. We'll just take the beautiful things, and we'll put that forward. And so they do, and that kind of religion just holds no appeal for anyone except as a substitute for the real thing. And while... Men and women, through these and many other devices, fight and oppose and ridicule the gospel that we hold dear and perish along the way. The gospel, which is from God, goes on and on and on. And yet I need to say, 
But although it continues by the power and will of God, it does not do so without human channels, which is why I think Luke closes this section of the book by his reference to Barnabas and Saul and John Mark. The gospel is going to expand, you see, that God has decreed by the same kind of decree by which he has said it will expand, that it will expand through the medium of human messengers. That's why at the beginning, Jesus, as he announced that the Holy Spirit would come in power and bless the preaching of the gospel, nevertheless said to these apostles, you will be my witnesses. That was true in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and now we're going to see that it is also to be true to the uttermost corners of the earth. Barnabas and Saul are going to be the first missionaries, and with them, John Mark. I'm glad he mentioned John Mark. If he had only mentioned Barnabas and Saul, we might have said to ourselves, well, naturally, what do you expect? Saul, Paul was an apostle. Barnabas was also called one, his great friend. These were marvelous men. No wonder they're the ones that would carry out the mission. But he also mentions John Mark. This John Mark was the author of the book by that name, a friend of Peter's and of Barnabas. He was a relative of Barnabas, cousin, and a friend of Paul. He traveled with them much of his time. We know at the beginning, back at the time of the Gospels, that he was a young man. He's probably the young man who fled away in the garden in the night of Jesus' arrest, probably just a teenager at the time. And here he is in the company of these great men, these apostles, and he begins to travel with them. There's a period there when he seemed to fall away from the gospel, at least in Paul's judgment, and Paul said, oh, I don't have any use for Mark. He and Barnabas quarreled over it. Paul didn't want to take him, and Barnabas said, no, no, he's my cousin, and he's just a young man, and, and I want to take him. He'll do all right, and he did. And Paul, much to his credit, years later, when he has occasion in his final letters to refer to this man, John Mark, says that he's profitable for the gospel because the young man was He was just young at the time these things were beginning to unfold, but God used him, and I suppose he became, in a certain way, the next generation of Christian missionary. Many of you are young. You look to others who have been in the faith a long time before you, and you say, well, yes, they're the ones that ought to carry it on, and they are. They're trying to, to the best of their ability, but you are one as well. This message, you shall be my witnesses, It's not only for the pastors, not only for the aged, not only for those in positions of responsibility or prominence in the church. It is for all God's people, all God's people. And it is by that means that this great verse, verse 24, is fulfilled when it says that the Word of God continued to increase and spread. May it increase widely. In our day, may it spread through us as through others in earlier generations to every corner of our world. Let us pray. Father, we would take these words to ourselves, desiring to be not even by neglect like Herod, who opposed the gospel, but like these early heroes of the faith, Barnabas and Saul, And John Mark, who, to the best of their ability and with the talents and skills that you provided, actually traveled about and spoke it 
to all their contemporaries. Grant our Father that we might be like that, and so, as a result in our time, as in theirs, this glorious gospel, this gospel which is so useful and powerful and eternal, and which is destined to prevail, that through us that gospel might indeed increase and spread widely. For Jesus' sake, amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1 800 488 1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C 2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.